You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice, a director and professor at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and you're listening to the Religica Theo Lab. And today we're in conversation with Professor Mark Lloyd Taylor who is Professor Emeritus at Seattle University, having taught theology, worship, and preaching there for 25 years. And currently, he serves at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Seattle, Washington, in many roles, including as associate for liturgy and godly play teacher. We're going to talk about that in a moment. He's also a licensed lay preacher in the Diocese of Olympia in Washington State. Dr. Taylor's latest book, and it's the topic of our conversation, is titled So Fill Our Imaginations, The Work and Play of a Year of Preaching. It includes 12 sermons across the 2016-17 church year, and it's set along the backdrop of a turbulent and supersaturated year, as Dr. Taylor calls it, of life in the world, featuring parish departures and resilience, a housing crisis in neighborhood and city, and the inauguration of Donald Trump as president. And yet this text is also poised for the displacements that people feel today relative to a pandemic, the sense of loss and grief that has accompanied that pandemic, and for many, an awakening of the systemic and structural injustices inside of American society. I encourage you to take a listen. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mark Taylor, for joining us today for the podcast. Thank you. I've been working at this project for a long time. It's so exciting to have a conversation about it and begin to let go of it and let it meet other people. Well, and in terms of meeting other people and also what we heard in the introduction, speaking of the supersaturated time in the world today, which this text takes so much important time with, would you tell us more about the cause and communities that inform your writing? So, For instance, as you're thinking of that, why follow the arc of an ecclesial or church year? And and if you will, in what feels deeply like an uncertain future for so many listeners today, can you tell us about baby Sophia and the wisdom to navigate the journey, as you note in your text, even as the future may feel like a mystery to so many today? Sure. So there are two primary communities that have incubated this book. One is St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Seattle, Washington, where I've been a member for almost 25 years. The other is the School of Theology and Ministry at Seattle University, where I taught for almost 25 years. And so in a, in a very interesting way, my role as a lay preacher at the parish and my role as a professor of preaching and a professor of worship and a professor of theology at the school have just been such a fruitful kind of interaction with those who have interacted so fruitfully with each other. As I said, I've been preaching at St. Paul's for 25 years. It just so happened that during the 2016-17 church year, I was basically scheduled to preach once a month for 12 months. That had never happened before. It's never happened since. For my occasional preaching, which we'll talk about later, uh, to have become that regular. And lo and behold, it was the year of Trump's inauguration and the Mm. first year of the Trump administration with all of the issues around displaced people and violence against women and race and dispossession. So I I use Donald Trump as a kind of cipher or emblem for everything that was going on in the world. And, And so when I say super saturated, I mean, there was just a lot going on there. Yeah. But sort of the the home of these sermons was, you know, a relatively small but healthy 
Episcopal Parish in Seattle, Washington. Mm -hmm. So the history of St. Paul's is part of the context. The people, the physical plant, the building, the kinds of services we hold. But then St. Paul's is in a neighborhood, Lower Queen Anne, and the housing crisis, and the huge numbers of unsheltered people living on our doorstep. Yeah, is part of the context of preaching. And then there's the city of Seattle, and then there's the state of Washington and the West Coast and the United States and the world. So context is both very, very local and personal, mm-hmm. but it's also global and political and economic and social. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So the, the 12 sermons come from the period December 2016 through November of 2017. Okay. But the writing of the memoir, looking back at them, comes from two years later, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I'm looking back at these sermons a couple of years later for reasons we may talk about. And then, so the gestation of the book was two years after the original sermons were preached. And then the final work on the book took place during COVID over the last year and a half. So, so it's in some ways it feels nostalgic to be looking at back at the good old days before Trump was president. (laughs) Although in the book, I make some suggestions that there were some warning signs, even in these sermons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like today with a war going on in Ukraine feels like who would have known in April of 2017, what April of 2022 would bring in terms of world context. So for me, that's a reminder of how preaching is always in progress and the preacher better be growing, right? Yeah. The preacher can't just have a formula settled upon 10 years ago because, and I hope we talk about this later, Michael, My preaching in 2021 and 2022, I find significantly different than what I find in these 12 sermons, Hmm. as much as I like them. So, you know, as context shifts, what it means to preach into a context has to shift and adapt and grow. Yeah. So these are 12 actual sermons that I preached across this arc of a single church year. Okay. It never would have occurred to me just sort to sort of randomly pick a dozen of my sermons from 25 years and put them in a book. Mm-hmm. I never would have done that. These 12 sermons, in a way, picked me, if that makes sense, because they belong together, because they go sort of slowly and steadily yeah. through one church year. So when I look back at these 12 sermons, I see myself struggling with the gospel of Matthew, which has never been my favorite gospel, probably right. my least favorite of the gospel. I'd go, to, <laughs> I'd go to Mark or I'd go to John. So looking back, it's these sermons belong together as a year's worth of preaching. And that's really, so that was the germ of the idea of wrapping them in a memoir around their composition and delivery their reception among the congregation, and then their subsequent agency later in the life of the community. So again, it's almost like the sermons, these 12 sermons were already a living organism, and that chose me as a writer. Well, and I wonder, with the experiences so many have had around destabilization, albeit in uneven ways through this pandemic, the sense of loss and grief 
that is attributed to it and the, the kind of awakening to some of the social and societal inequalities and also you know, significant justice issues that we've seen. What's interesting to me about the 12 sermons choosing you is that none of us really choose how we're going to respond to any of that. But inside of these sermons, you've provided an opportunity for people to reflect on their own pain, to reflect on their own sense of loss or grief. And for instance, to not play the payback game as the reader will take a look at and how to address a culture of fear, like how to really think through fear. I think you're offering, you're offering people windows through these sermons to reflect on their own sense of displacement and rehoming or refinding. Is that is that an accurate way of putting that, or how how might you describe that? Yeah, I mean, it's I've always referred to this book in my own mind as my preaching book, mm-hmm. and for obvious reasons that makes sense. I really hope that there's something in this book, both for people like yourself who do actually preach, mm-hmm. but I hope there's also something there for just church people and maybe even not church people who hear sermons or listen to podcasts by Mm -hmm. writers or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we're recording this, dear listener, on April the 22nd. This would have been my mom's 92nd birthday, but she passed over to that more spacious life three years ago. And it's also Earth Day, right, for the last 52 years. So that also... So, you know, we we think a lot about the preacher is an interpreter of Scripture, yeah, and that is certainly true, but I think the preacher also needs to be vulnerable enough to listen deeply to their own life experience, to their own pain, to their own joys, and the preacher has to be a sort of a full-time cultural observer who reads newspapers and goes to movies and reads books. So, yeah, to me, it was fascinating to sort of be given these 12 historical sermons and then reflect a little on, so what was going on in my life (laughs) when I preached the sixth one? Or, you know, what was going on at St. Paul's or in the United States of America with number nine? The answer is Charlottesville, Virginia, and the white supremacist rally. And that's threaded through the whole book. Thank you so much for sharing that first with us and an acknowledgement of, of your mother and her life and acknowledgement also of where we are in terms of Earth Day and a recognition that the invitation that you're making is open and people can enter in where they need to and they can acknowledge their sense of loss or of grief. And yet there are also periods here of significant insight and possibility for growth and joy. And I think for those of us, listener, who know Dr. Taylor, you know, we hear his voice through this text. It's a voice that you describe as a vocational theologian. I'd love you to say more more about that. And in terms of these 12 sermons, in the introduction of the book, you note it's a memoir. You've been already referencing that spiritual, personal, theological, and also grounded in the community where you serve. Earlier on, you described, insofar as you are a vocational theologian or an occasional preacher, I'd love you to say more about that and a writer. Can you just walk us through that? What does it mean to be those things? And yeah. are you also thinking that all of us have a kind of vocational aptitude that you're playing to and relying on in this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I'm not a different person yeah. as preacher than as theologian than as writer. I mean, for better or for worse, you're getting Mark Lloyd Taylor. He's great. You know? But there are these three distinct, do I want to call them roles? Do I want to call them dances that I perform or movements that I make? Yeah, I think so. 
So I am a professional vocational theologian. Mm-hmm. I get paid to do that. <laughs> um, I've been doing it for 30 years in a variety of different institutions, most recently Seattle University. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about being a vocational theologian, I take that seriously, that this is my primary calling mm-hmm. as a person, is the calling to theological reflection which is always for me this dialogue between the tradition we receive from our parents and our ancestors, mm-hmm. in my case, the Christian tradition, but it's also in dialogue with my life here and now, my own experience, the movies of the culture, the news. So there's always this dialogue between tradition and human experience going on in that vocational theologian and theology. I am a layperson. I am not a deacon or a bishop in the Episcopal Church, and I'm sure not a bishop in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> so, so whatever my occasional preaching ministry is, it comes from my baptism. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I've got this PhD hanging around my neck, so people know that. And so I've been encouraged for decades to be preaching in my home parishes, and that feels wonderful. But that's part of what I mean by my occasional preaching. Mm-hmm. I am so aware, for instance, in 2016-17, when these 12 sermons of mine were preached, the rector of St. Paul's was a wonderful priest named Sarah Fisher. And she had an associate named Rob Rhodes. Mm -hmm. They were the people who were preaching basically three weeks out of four. I was the person that came in sort of once a month on occasion. I've always taken that seriously that, first of all, I don't have the same kind of access Mm -hmm. to the lives of the people at St. Paul's. I mean, I try to be a friendly engaged parishioners. So I I hope I know something about what's going on in people's lives. But I do not hear people's confessions as the priests do. I do not anoint people before surgery in hospital rooms. I do not stand next to them and talk to them before they get married or before they bury a grant, right? That's also what I mean by being an occasional preacher. I've always thought the role I might play is to offer some contrast or some shading to what they do week in and week out. I'm hoping that I might find sort of an empty corner (laughs) to preach in or, you know, some space. So that's, so the vocational theologian is sort of what I do Monday through Friday, week in and week out, year in and year out. Mm -hmm. The preaching is much less frequent. It's more occasional. There's both a gift and a trap there. I mean, Mm. I typically know two or three months ahead of time I'm going to be preaching. So I know today that I'm going to be preaching on Sunday, May 15th, 2022, Uh Easter 5. I know that. I know what the readings are. I I don't know what it would be like to have to preach every week, you know, to be done with Easter Sunday and then have to preach the next Sunday. So that's the vocational is the day in and day out. The occasional is a little less frequent. But the other part of my role as professor has been I'm required to publish things. Mm -hmm. I'm required to publish scholarly materials. So I've been doing that for 30 or 40 years. I've always found writing very rewarding and very, very hard work. Mm. 
part of what was so surprising and invigorating about writing this book as memoir, as opposed to academic essay, is I felt much, much freer to play. Mm -hmm. And readers, if you ever read this book, you'll notice there's a very oral style to my writing. It is not, I hope, heavy, dense, Teutonic, academic, theological prose. I hope it's much more conversational in the way that I hope my sermons are. So this book has been a gift to me as writer because it allowed me to do it in a slightly different manner and in a way that's been very, very rewarding. Well, and with respect to what's rewarding, I'd like to ask you more about these distinctions between work and play. You use the word playful often in terms of what it means to be a playful preacher rather than say a working preacher. And maybe in part, that's what you've been speaking to already, but it seems to me that there's a connection also, and you and I've talked about this. In fact, this initiated with your suggestion, connection between play and injustice. And that play also allows us an opportunity to imagine what the reader will experience as a motif in this text, the great reversals that are possible, possible in the text, possible for our own lives. Could you also say a little more about how you understand that with respect to the text and, and these main themes between, say, play and work and the invitation also for the great reversal that, that is important to the experience of the reader? Yeah, thank you. So there is a, a pretty widely distributed resource there are a lot of books about preaching out there. Mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, really a lot. There are collections of sermons. There are some memoirs by preachers mm -hmm. about their preaching life. That's the name of one of them. And then there's a ton of resources and guides about how to preach or how to preach better. I hope that this book sort of blends all three of those threads, a set of actual sermons wrapped in a memoir that then launches into me reflecting theologically on preaching and its mm -hmm. contexts and content. So there's this resource in that mix called The Working Preacher. Okay. And it's good. It's important. I know a lot of my preaching colleagues use it. For me, this book is an attempt to sort of balance the work of preaching with the play of preaching. So where does that come from, Michael asks? Um, yeah. <laughs> it'll be a slightly longer answer. Mm -hmm. And the editor may need to splice this a little bit, but let me try that. So perhaps the most important element of my spiritual formation over the past 15 years has been having children back in my life. Mm -hmm. My grandsons, first of all. Yeah. First grandson was born 14 years ago. And all of a sudden, there's babies and young children in my life. And then my other daughter had a couple of boys. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, whereas my daughters, you know, it, it's been 30 years since they were young mm -hmm. children, right? So that's huge. And I knew that was important to me. And I loved being a grandfather immediately mm -hmm. with these boys. And I thought, huh, I wonder if I could be part of the children's ministry at St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. And the children's ministry at St. Paul's is based on the Montessori godly play curriculum, which is very distinctive, very Montessori. It's very interactive. The assumption is children have spiritual depth and theological insight of their own. Mm -hmm. What the adult in the room is about is trying to coax the children to be able to share and name and find language for their own spiritual depth. 
So I got trained as a godly play instructor, and I spent a decade or so teaching to three to five-year-olds and first to third graders at St. Paul's. Yeah. And there's it's a curriculum. It's got stories from the Hebrew Bible. It's got a set of lessons on the parables of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's got a wonderful set of lessons for Lent that leads you up to Easter that's called Faces of Easter. Mm-hmm. And each of them involves a different plaque with a different face of Jesus on it from infant all the way up to crucified and risen one. Mm-hmm. So godly play had been around St. Paul's for years. I got trained to teach it. I got experienced at teaching it. Mm-hmm. Nothing has been more revolutionary for my own Christian formation lately than that. Why is that? Because like your Lutheran tradition, my mm-hmm. Episcopal tradition has all kinds of luxurious fruits way out on the end yeah. of these 20, 30-foot branches, right? Mm-hmm. Godly play does not go there. Godly play goes to the trunk and to the roots of the Christian story. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of cleared out for me a lot of the clutter, a lot of the adult verbiage, and invited me to, in a sense, I mean, this is the name of another book, to kind of experience Jesus again for the first time yeah. in a more playful, childlike way. So, ironically, The curriculum is called Godly Play, and at the heart of it, the adult storyteller, which is what we're named, presents a lesson. They come in all kinds of different forms. But then it's so amazing to me that the children's response to the word, to the lesson, is called their work. Mm. So the curriculum, the lesson is called play, but the children's free-floating artistic response is called their work. And as a storyteller, as we come to the end of that section, I I say, now begin to think about what work you want to do today. And it could be embroidery. Uh It could be painting. It could be wood carving. So for me, that takes my adult sense of what work and play mean as binaries. Mm -hmm. It's like you're either working or you're playing. You can't do both, right? right? And it completely turns them inside out. I want to use the language of work and play get queered, so they're no longer a binary. And so that's why in the book, when I kind of talk this through or write this through, I end up talking about playful work and working play to try to hint at, for me, they're no longer, it's no longer a binary of, so the work of preaching for me is playful and the play of preaching requires some really heavy exegetical work to make sense of that text in Matthew or whatever. So that's where kind of that whole dynamic of work and play comes from for me, comes from godly play. So then let me talk just briefly about the morning worship services at St. Paul's compared to the evening worship services. Mm -hmm. Before COVID, and now since we reopened about 16 months ago, St. Paul's has had a portfolio of a morning service or services, and then one at five o'clock in the evening. Mm-hmm. The morning services take place upstairs in this big, beautiful, mid-century modern 1962 edifice, very vertical with a relatively small footprint for the congregation. Mm-hmm. If you preach on Sunday mornings, you are the only person in the room standing up. 
The preacher alone is standing. The preacher yeah. is in an elevated pulpit. Everybody else is seated below the preacher, right? Yeah. yeah. Typical, classic, traditional way of, of doing. And so I'm the only one talking. The preacher is the only one speaking. The Sunday evening service takes place downstairs in the parish hall with altar in the center of the room, the presider's chair at one end, the pulpit, the ambo at the other end, with movable chairs in a circle all the way around. Mm -hmm. All of that has to be set up from scratch every Sunday night mm -hmm. and put away because of everything else that goes on in that space. If I'm preaching at Sunday night, I am seated like everybody else in the room. If the priest preaches, they preach seated. Yeah. If I preach seated, my left shoulder is probably, well, before COVID, three feet away from the nearest person. They're about six feet away now. We're trying to yeah, do social right. distancing, right? And what we practice at five o'clock is what we call a shared homily. So the preacher makes maybe seven minutes of kind of orienting remarks that end with questions, not answers, to which anybody in the room can give a brief oral response. Mm -hmm. The five o'clock service with its shared homily at St. Paul's is absolutely rooted in godly play practice in mm -hmm. theory. So, I mean, the worship space is set up as if it were a godly play circle. The preacher operates kind of like a godly play storyteller who prompts questions so that the listeners to the sermon who have their own theological depth and their own insights can offer those. Mm -hmm. So that's the other wrinkle on the plate. So I realized very early on, the five o'clock Sunday worship service has been around for about a dozen years. I realized very early on, I loved preaching at five o'clock mm -hmm. because it's much more conversational. Even if I had an outline mm -hmm. or a script in front of me, it just feels much more conversational, much yeah. easier to make eye contact with. Yeah. And it felt more playful because I was able, I, if I chose to, I could hold up a picture of something or I could have an object on the altar during my sermon and refer to that. So five o'clock preaching has always felt more playful, more artistic, more multimedia than preaching in the morning, standing up, you know, reading a sermon. So one of my big questions has been, how do I bring more of my playful self upstairs from five o'clock mm -hmm. into that pulpit? Because frankly, Michael, I've always, I mean, I, I love the pulpit. It's beautiful. There's stuff about that in the book, read it. But I've always felt kind of constrained by that pulpit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do I bring more of myself up there? The one wonderful thing I, well, a wonderful thing I'll say about doing worship on Zoom Mm -hmm. During the height of COVID was, I discovered that if I'm preaching on Zoom, I can show a slideshow on my computer mm -hmm. and everybody else can see it on their computer screens at home. Whereas in our worship space, there's no way to put pictures up in mm -hmm. the morning upstairs. So I found that, that Zoom church actually helped me bring more of my playful self into the morning preaching duties. And I've tried to carry that on in different ways since we've reopened. Let me ask you a question about the downstairs, upstairs aspect of this, because it seems to me 
that part of the alchemy or part of the possibility of the downstairs experience is that you're really connecting with people in a more, perhaps more fundamental way. And I, here's what I mean. I want to suggest this and tell me, tell me what you think. And the listener, you know, you can, you can visualize that you're in the circle. This is a shared, more equanimous space. There is, of course, the things that we bring with us into those conversations, into community. We may have some fear or lament, some anxieties, concerns, and more. But what you said about work and play, it seems provides an opportunity where you're breaking the binaries, where play and work can be more closely aligned. Is your hope, looking out on that circle and those folks, that what you're seeing in them is a willingness to engage a kind of maybe you're invoking even do you see joy show up or the kind of beauty that takes place in the creative act because we know that's just so important to our listening experience and even maybe just the courage to be in a time like this that people are given permission to respond as you mentioned kind of closer to the trunk of that tree respond in a truer kind of maybe faithful way about how they want to conduct all the rest of their lives and that goes out to the branches is that Reminiscent of what you experience or what others experience in that context? Yeah, very, very much so. The wondering questions that five o'clock preachers typically close with, which is a complete ripoff of godly play. That's exactly how godly play describes it. I wonder, so you're, you know, imagine being in a circle of three to five-year-olds. I wonder if you've ever seen weeds, yeah. like to go along with the weeds among the wheat. I wonder if you've ever seen wheat. I wonder if the farmer was happy to see the weeds growing in the wheat. So there are questions that may be cued by the scripture text, mm -hmm. but five o'clock preachers often will ask questions that go right to the heart of people's personal lives in the room, hopefully with boundaries and, you know, nobody has to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about. The 12th sermon in the book acquired the title later on, mending what fear has buried. And there's a lot going on. It's a five o'clock sermon. By the way, six of the 12 sermons were preached at five o'clock. Six were preached in the morning. So there's this interesting interaction there. Mm -hmm. So the 12th sermon, mending what fear has buried, the gospel text is the parable of the talents. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this rich autocrat. Well, we better not use that word. There's this rich person who, who gives slaves five talents, two talents, one talent. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Those are big, big, big numbers. Uh -huh. It's hyperbolic. It's exaggeration. The person with the five talents invests them and makes five more. The person with the two talents does the same. But the fearful third slave is so afraid of the master that they dig a hole, bury it in the ground, and then return the one talent as it was mm. given to them. So that's kind of the, the gospel roots of the worship experience or the mm. sermonic experience. There are a couple of other factors. One of them is the traditional Japanese art form called kintsuji, which involves mending broken pots or vessels with gold enamel. And there's this Korean artist, Yisuk Jung, who's taken that to an outrageous different level where she builds these seven foot tall assemblages of broken pots that are all mended with gold. 
and their kimchi pots that were meant to be buried underground until the cabbage ferments. So that's all in the background of this sermon. So then at the very end of sort of unpacking the gospel and, and showing a picture of what kintsuji is and showing a picture of Yisuk Jung's artistry, I ask questions like, what have we buried out of fear? Yeah. Meaning in our own lives, in the community, in the United States. Yeah. What were we so afraid of? that we squandered the very gift, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of questions. And I want to say that preaching at St. Paul's in the morning has been so glorious over the 25 years I've been there. We have great preachers. Mm -hmm. And I am not saying that, that the preaching in the morning doesn't tap into people's lives. It does. Mm -hmm. But it's harder to hide your tears at five o'clock because right. you're in a circle looking at each other. Yeah. Whereas it's a little easier to hide that upstairs. Joy has bubbled up, laughter has bubbled up, tears, anger has bubbled up. Mm -hmm. There have been times where people have felt free enough to sort of talk back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't like this parable. Yeah. This is not the inclusive Jesus I believe in. This is a Jesus of closed doors and outer dark. Mm -hmm. Part of the gift of five o'clock is it, I think it allows the worshiper to be fully themselves in whatever kind of faith, doubt, anger, fear is there. So I was part of the original planning team that devised the five o'clock liturgy. All kinds of reasons why we decided to go in that direction. You can read about some of that in the book. And part of the deal of being on that planning team is we committed that each of us would be there every Sunday for the first six months. Mm -hmm to see how it worked, but also to try to model what we thought. So the two big innovations of the five o'clock service are the church in the round, the circle of people sitting next to each other, all on the same level, and the shared homily. And we were hoping that we got that right. I guess what I would say that I learned from the five o'clock over the years is it provides a pretty different image, if we can use that language, mm -hmm. of what church should be. So, Michael, I wonder if a lot of people out there in the churches are hungering for something more like that five o'clock circle where it's clear that we are all of equal value and mm -hmm. that the people in the robes that are up front aren't the only people that matter. Mm -hmm. The church can be about dialogue, not about monologue. It can be about good questions over rigid answers. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk about this later. I, I'm hoping that one gift of the book is to nudge people to reimagine church mm -hmm. in the year 2022 in as a more playful, interactive, risk-taking kind of place, mm -hmm. and that we can maybe finally move away from church is a place where an ordained expert tells me what I should do mm -hmm. if I'm a lay observer sitting. So yeah, I mean, it, it goes from church being a spectator sport to in that circle, church is a place where all need to participate if any of us are going to be fully healthy. Well, let's go to that question of church. Let me first begin by going right to the title. So fill our imaginations. I mean, the images themselves fill us with images across the arc of these 12 sermons, and you describe many of these kind of percolating images. You're already referring to a few in terms of verbal or visual cues, or it's tactile, I think, very much in your recalling of the work being done, the preaching, and the kind of 
invitation to be playful and at work at the same time in, in the sermons and with one another in that five o'clock time frame. Thinking back to the first question, what do you see as some of the hunger for imagination? Even before we have the conversation of the church, we just think about those people around you. Where is the hunger now today that these sermons and other sermons that engage in this style are seeking to fill? What's your response to that? If the memoir part of the book, I've identified these four elements to yeah. that memoir. It's about the composition and delivery of the mm -hmm. sermons. That's mostly me, right? Mm -hmm. I compose them and then I deliver them either from a pulpit or seated in the round. The third is reception. That's all about the congregation. Okay. I suppose of the four elements of the memoir, that's the one I know least about. Mm -hmm. Because if people don't tell me, I don't know how they received it. I mean, there's some anecdotes in the book about places where, particularly in a five o'clock setting, the reception of my words were on people's faces because they were pissed off at mm -hmm. right. the parable of the weeds among the wheat or the talents or whatever. Yeah. And then the fourth one is subsequent agency, which means okay. what was the ongoing life of that sermon? And, and that goes to some of the images that I'll, I'll hopefully remember to come back to in, yeah. in just a minute. I mean, I guess that line, so fill our imaginations, is from a prayer that's in the Episcopal Church 1979 prayer book. Mm -hmm. goes back to Archbishop Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during most of World War II, mm -hmm. and he died in the middle of it. That's kind of an interesting story. So it's a, it's a prayer of his for how we dedicate ourselves to God. And it's a prayer to God to so guide our minds, so draw our hearts, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be utterly dedicated to you and so forth. Yeah. It's always been the imagine. And, and so that's a prayer that the people serving at the altar at St. Paul's, both lay and ordained, pray together before we go out into worship during Advent and Lent. So I've probably right. prayed that prayer <laughs> hundreds of times over the 25 years at St. Paul's. And it's always been the so fill our imagination that most goes to my heart, mm -hmm. more so than drawing my heart, although I hope that happens, more than guiding my mind, more than controlling my will. That that bothers me a little bit. That feels like a God who's going to twist me into something I'm not. Mm -hmm. So I guess my hope is other people out there also experience imagination as an underemphasized part of the human personhood. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that if, if that's a part of our humanity that's underemphasized, mm -hmm. then maybe the Christian church doesn't do a very good job of addressing mm -hmm. imagination. Maybe it's more about mind or heart or will. So part of, again, part of the work of the and the play of the book is to try to shuffle things up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's take the imagination more seriously. So I guess I hope that people out there feel the same kind of draw that I feel. And maybe part of it is because I'm a vocational theologian, mm -hmm. uh -huh. my professional life is all about words and concepts. Yeah, I don't need to go to church for lectures or, you know, lessons about theology. No. What I need is a really gripping image brought up from a parable of Jesus mm -hmm. or an icon from the Orthodox tradition or whatever. So I'm, I guess I'm hoping, I can't, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the response to the book is. I hope that 
strikes a chord with other people. Could you say a little more about some of the images that are so rich in these sermons and what you're, you're providing? So when I look back at these 12 sermons, I'm struck by the active verbs, or I think they're technically called gerunds, which means they're verbs that are shape-shifting as nouns. Oh, nice. So, I mean, just, just a few of the titles of some of these sermons, most of which were composed after the fact, seeing the signs. Yeah. Beyond the fences. You mentioned this earlier, refusing to play the payback game, which is a sermon on forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Mending what fear has buried. So it's interesting to me, and, and I, I guess I want to say that when after the fact I had to give these sermons titles because they were going to be posted to the St. Paul's website, I don't think of the titles as trying to parse out the theology of the sermons or even the scriptural content of the sermons. Mm-hmm. I think the sermons are trying to catch what's a central metaphor there. Mm-hmm. So the second sermon in the bunch was preached two days after the inauguration of Donald J. Trump as president Mm -hmm. of the United States, Mm -hmm. and a day after the Worldwide Women's March. Mm -hmm. So inaugurations were in my mind, but I needed something to make that concrete, and it was the language of walking, because that Sunday morning, we also heard in Matthew's gospel sort of the first telling of a story of the adult ministry of Jesus. And the story starts by saying, and Jesus walked. (laughs) And so walking makes the way. So in that sermon, walking gives the notion of inaugurations a metaphorical leg. My favorite sermon of the 12 is sermon number nine. Hmm. It's got the title, The Conversion of Jesus. It was preached in August of 2017. The gospel text for that Sunday in the lectionary that the Episcopal Church uses is that story in Matthew 15 of Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman. Mm -hmm. And I start that sermon by saying, I want to propose a new feast day in the church calendar today. It's going to be called the conversion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman is the perfect gospel text to think about the fact that the words and the actions of this foreign woman, this Canaanite woman with her demon-possessed daughter, actually converts Jesus mm-hmm. and turns his sense of who deserves the grace of God around in a radical kind of way. Mm-hmm. Subsequent agency. So here's the perfect example of that. At the very end of that sermon, I said something like, after I, you know, unpacked the gospel, after I talked a little bit about Charlottesville, Virginia, and the white supremacist demonstration that had happened a week or two earlier, yeah, I said, now, if we were at St. Paul's, being the kind of church we are, if we were really going to celebrate the feast of the conversion of Jesus Christ, we'd need to have somebody make an icon of mm-hmm. that occasion. And I sort of left it. That was my throwaway line at the end of the sermon. <laughs> Like a year later, I thought, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. So I reached out to this woman who was known to me both from St. Paul's and from School of Theology and Ministry at Seattle mm-hmm. U, Susan mm-hmm. Fiker. And I knew she was a painter. I said, Susan, can I commission you to make an icon 
mm-hmm. of Matthew 15. And I said, all I got to go on is maybe the Canaanite woman is in the middle. Jesus is off to one side being sort of turned around, being converted. The demon-possessed daughter is on one side. Maybe the bitchy disciples are on another side complaining, shut this woman up. And maybe the background is not Seattle, but it's Kabul or Mogadishu. It's an, mm-hmm. it's an identifiably but anonymous Muslim city to telegraph the fact that in that story, Jesus is away from home. Mm-hmm. He's not in Galilee. He's in the region of Tyre and Sidon, where this mm-hmm. woman is from. Susan Fiker painted an icon. It's the cover art on the book. Mm-hmm. She painted it on a burned two-foot-by-three-foot metal ceiling tile. <laughs> there it is. It's, an, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of how kind of the playfulness of that sermon lived beyond the Sunday morning where I preached it. And it wasn't until like a year and a half later that that crazy idea of making an icon of the Canaanite woman and Jesus' conversion came to fruition. Mm. And there are some other examples of that. So the images are both embedded in the sermons, but also there are a number of almost like art projects that came out of the book, out of the, in the book that came out of the sermons. Yeah. As you're speaking about these images, I'm sure the listener has a sense of this, but let's just say it aloud. There's something about reading a book like this from a colleague who self-describes with their vocational, theological, and sometimes preaching kind of self-description at the very top of their capacity to be creative. Like you are so clear in this about method, the context that shape the images that you're using are the ones you've chosen. And I'm sure you've thought of others and not included those. These are the ones, the invitation to the kind of creative act to imagine and the kind of theological depth that it's not disguised in play. It's very present. It's just done in such a way that it's inviting others to play as well. I want to ask you now, we talked about reimagining. What does the church need to reimagine? It's a theme here. And, and I wonder if we can think of the church. Often we consider it kind of operationally. It's that building down, down the street, four walls and a ceiling. But I think the church that we might be referring to is that one which takes up residence in the past, present, and future. It, is, it includes the cloud of witnesses, all of those who have informed our faith, walk, and lives, our parents, siblings, others who have been present for us in those critical times or junctures in life. And that church, with all of its scripture, history, tradition, and heritage, also has the possibility to imagine maybe that's not happening at the level we would hope. Maybe we've not emphasized imagination enough. So I wonder, Mark, with your self-description as a vocational theologian, as an occasional preacher, as a writer, as a teacher, and given what you've said about necessary allyship, what are you imagining comes next? What are you working on? So, I mean, again, to kind of start at the more visual, concrete level of imagination. Yeah. What would it be like? I mean, I, would it be fair to say that far too often over the past 2000 years, there are a lot of metaphors of church mm-hmm. and probably every one of them has a grain of truth and every one of them has a blind spot right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what is church? Is church a fortress? Is church a lighthouse? Is church a lifeboat? We could spin out those images of church. Mm-hmm. I guess I would hope that the book 
because of one of its feet in that five o'clock Sunday worship service at St. Paul's, what if church were reimagined more as a circle of people sharing a space Mm -hmm. rather than this long, narrow rectangle where there's a few, the ordained, the clergy, who are the ones that are in charge and the rest of the church are simply spectators. Mm -hmm, Right. Because I think that second image, church as kind of long rectangle with a few up front on an elevated platform, the rest of us sitting down, it's harder to see why that kind of church would have any relevance to life in the world, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. so if, if, if that church, if church as a long rectangle with doors is going to be relevant to life in the world, the world has to come into the church and become, right? Whereas mm-hmm. if churches circle, circling around the death and resurrection of Jesus that's present in that tangible earthy bread and wine, right? Mm -hmm. Then everything that goes on in the world is just as earthy and just as filled with the presence of Christ, Mm -hmm. right? If church is circle, then I think of it as concentric circles that ripple out. I told you earlier that the the altar for the five o'clock church at St. Paul's has to be moved out of storage every week and put in place in the center. I've always had this fascination, this fantasy. What would happen if that altar got put on wheels Uh and rolled up the ramp and out into lower Queen Anne? You know, is that a next? So if church is reimagined as circling around the body and blood of Christ, then can that body and blood of Christ be carried in our bodies and in our blood out into the world? Yeah socially, politically, economically, does that give church a place in the city of Seattle's politics? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that church, even a predominantly white church like St. Paul's, oh, if our circle has to move out from that five o'clock worship space into the United States of America, what do we do as white people Mm -hmm. with the fact that Black Lives Matter and don't mm-hmm. in the United States of America. Yeah. What does that mean around displaced people throughout the world because of warfare and so forth? So that would be kind of a very concrete way of thinking about reimagining mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. I guess if I can, you know, kind of confess the most important question that I take with me from writing this book mm-hmm. is so what would happen if we took that work, play, working, play, playful work, no longer binary, right? Mm -hmm. What if we let that rub up against what sometimes has been a binary within Christianity between faith and mission, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Faith and, quote, outreach, that's horrible. I don't like outreach. Right. That is not what church is about. Yeah. That goes back to, we got something in this rectangle that people out there need. Mm -hmm. If as a baptized Christian in the Episcopal branch of the family tree, every Easter a week ago, I promised again, I reaffirmed my promise that I would respect the dignity of every human being as Mm -hmm. part of my baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ. What happens when working play playful work of these sermons or of being church, how does that rub up against 
compassion and justice in the world, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so my question to myself is, as a white cisgendered man, do I have the privilege of talking about play because I'm immune from much of the sufferings of the world that other people experience on a daily basis. I live in this world the way very few other people live in it. I have this privilege of my wealth, of my whiteness, and so forth. So I guess at the end of the day, I have to ask myself, is the work and play of a year of preaching, is that purely something that I amuse myself with? Or could this be of some real value in tipping the needle of the world toward justice, right? Yeah. There's a whole other thread in the book that tries to link godly play with the parables of Jesus, with Mm -hmm. the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, 19th century figure, Mm -hmm. who had a lot of theory and practice around the importance of indirect communication. Mm -hmm. So that the writer isn't just indoctrinating the, the hearer, the writer's not indoctrinating the reader, but as we've been talking about for an hour, Michael, mm-hmm. inviting them to play along in their own lives in, in ways like that. So, I mean, that's a real question. How does, I confess at the very beginning of the book that there is an indirectness to my preaching. I don't think I preach like Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I ask questions, I invite people in, mm-hmm. but again, do I have the privilege of doing that from a safe distance? Or could there be such a thing as playful justice yeah. or just play? Is it possible that that allyship with Black people in America mm-hmm. can be done in a playful manner? What would it be like to imagine a truly multi-generational, multiracial democracy that is America? Mm-hmm. What does that look like in a white community predominantly? What does that look like in a black community predominantly? Mm-hmm. So at the very end of the book, there's a little epilogue. And I talk briefly about, okay, Mark, so so here are these 12 sermons from five years ago. Great. You've reflected on them in a kind of memoir fashion. Mm-hmm. How has writing this book affected Mark Taylor, the preacher, going forward? Yeah. And I say a couple things there. I say the big thing is my preaching since the end of 2017 has much more circled around my own white privilege. Mm-hmm. My white privilege has been called to account. It's been called to conversion. It's been called into judgment. How have I responded to that, again, as a, as a white person, as a white mm-hmm. people? And I talk about some of the Black communities and Black people and Black art and Black literature that's been important to me over the last mm-hmm. few years. Mm-hmm. I preached at St. Paul's on Zoom four days after Joe Biden's inauguration as president of the United States. Interesting. So I preached two days after Donald Trump's inauguration in 97. Uh And I preached about four days because it was earlier in the week, four days after Biden's inauguration in 2021. And I reflect on that fact and that fact. Toward the end of that sermon, I do a little more of the imagining. I said, I can imagine, because this was, you know, after years of, do we take down the Confederate monuments, right? Mm-hmm. Back to Charlottesville. Yeah. So I said, I can imagine a bronze statue of one of those Confederate generals getting down off the pedestal, mm-hmm. throwing away the flag, the stars and bars, 
which paraded through the U.S. Capitol yeah. two weeks earlier on yeah. January 6, threw away his sword, threw it, and walks to Washington, D.C., and becomes falls in line at the end of a group of white allies on Martin Luther King Day, right, mm-hmm, which was right. also about to happen. I can imagine that. And then I said on Zoom, and I'd love, after this sermon is over, to try to create a work of art, a drawing, a collage, mm-hmm. which would merge my own actual family tree that could somehow merge the Confederate States of America gravestone mm-hmm. of my great-grandfather, Bushrod W. Taylor. Mm-hmm. He was no general. He was a little corporal, but he's got a Confederate States grave, right? Yeah. yeah. How would I create a collage that would put my photo of his gravestone together with the billboards demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. the African-American woman who was shot by police in her own house, her own apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. And so that's where that book leads me is, it feels like some of the things in this book come full circle, preaching at two different inaugurations after two different inaugurations for four years apart. Mm-hmm. But imagining sort of my future, reimagining Mark Taylor as, as maybe a more nimble, ally of Mm -hmm. African-Americans in this culture Mm -hmm. and person who can preach more effectively in a congregation that is predominantly white. Maybe we could conclude our time together where we began with the inspiration to you in writing this text from Sophia. So baby Sophia's parents were longtime members of that five o'clock Sunday evening worship circle that we've talked about. They got pregnant for the first time, but it was discovered within the first trimester that baby Sophia was afflicted with this really rare, really, really rare and really life-threatening chromosomal anomaly called trisomy 18, which really is life-threatening. Almost no babies that have trisomy 18 live beyond their first year. And I would say the majority are stillborn. They never live outside their mother's womb. And so Sophia's parents knew that early on, and they decided to go ahead and name their unborn baby. And they knew it was going to be a girl once the ultrasound showed that. So they named the child baby Sophia because in their understanding of feminist Christian theology, Sophia means wisdom. They were sure that they were going to need all the wisdom they could get from God to make it through whatever life held for this baby who would not likely live very long, if at all, outside of the womb. And they continued to come to St. Paul's at five o'clock on Sunday evening. And at the prayers of the people, we would every week pray by name for baby Sophia and her parents. Baby Sophia, in fact, was born stillborn. She She never lived outside of her mother's womb. She was born in late April of 2017, stillborn. Mm. And I was present and served in the liturgy of Sophia's Requiem Mass at St. Paul's a few days later. Our rector, our pastor at the time, Sarah Fisher, preached a sermon at Sophia's funeral. I got to hold this amazingly small, beautiful box of Sophia's ashes, Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny little box that held all that she was. And then we committed her to God and committed her ashes to the ground in the Bolster Memorial Garden. 
As I listened to, to Sarah, uh, Mother Sarah, preach her sermon on that occasion, again, I already knew that I was preaching on Sunday morning about three weeks hence. <laughs> mm-hmm. I knew that this, the one of the readings was going to be Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17, where Paul uses that line about the God in whom we live and move and have our being. So mm-hmm. I already I already had my preaching hat on in a way, leaning into that text. And as Sarah was preaching at this funeral of a stillborn child, baby Sophia, I thought, huh, the only universe baby Sophia ever experienced was her mother's womb. Mm. Or turn that around. Baby Sophia's mother's womb was her entire universe where she lived and moved and had her being. So for me, a lot of being a preacher is just to pay attention to my life, right? I mean, I did not go to that funeral looking for material for a sermon. That does not happen. Mm -mm. But I thought, holy smokes, that's a real insight. So Sarah's sermon sparked something in my mind, thinking about Acts chapter 17. And it called up for me the resources of what's called process theology, which I would claim process the, you know, again, me as vocational professional theologian, Hmm. I would claim feminist theology, black woman's or womanist theology, and process theology as sort of my three great resources that I draw Mm -hmm. on, Mm -hmm. both in the classroom and at church. Mm -hmm. So the thought about the God in whom we live and move and have our being called up the resources of process theology, which is all about God being involved in the world, not distant from the world, Mm -hmm. about even to use a fancy word, panentheism, all things exist within God, which is different from pantheism, everything is God, God is everything. Mm -hmm. And it's also different from traditional theism, where God and the world are seen as these two radically separate, unlike God, the world in God. So three weeks later, I preached this sermon that ended up being titled, To an Unknown God in Whom We Live and Move and Have Our Being. I said at the very end of sort of the the heart of that sermon, after I kind of played with the analogy of all of us as creatures of God being little baby Sophias, floating in our mother's wombs, living in our mother's wombs, that we live in God the way Sophia lived in, in her mother. So I fleshed that out. And then I kind of closed with this. So maybe the unavoidable question, where is God in all of this? Where Mm -hmm. is God in our lives? Needs to be reframed. Not where is God in our lives and our world, but where are we in God? How are we in God? What are we up to within God? How do we live and move and have our being spaciously, open to all others who are within God, which means everybody? Mm -hmm. Or do we clench around ourselves or some or a few? Mm. So that's something of the story of of baby Sophia. So an experience of a real life couple's both tragedy and wisdom Mm -hmm. connected to the ancient wisdom of Scripture, the Acts of the Apostles and Paul, sort of webbed in with this 20th century theological movement process theology in a little sermon that 
you know, 150 people listen to on a Sunday mm-hmm. <laughs> in Seattle, Washington. And it's sermon six in the text. It is the sixth and middle sermon of the bunch. Yep. Mm-hmm. So for the listener, this is an important work. It'll be instructive for all the ways we've described before. You can see also links where you can order the text, learn more about it, learn more about the author, Dr. Mark Lloyd Taylor. And with appreciation to you, Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a joy. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work, and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.